is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 25th of April 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data. My name is Dave, and here is my fabulous co-host, Jon. Hi, Good Dave. morning, Jon. Good almost afternoon. Well, afternoon, actually, Dave. Well, afternoon in your strange, bizarre time zone. It's not still morning here. It's not because you guys invented GMT that that's the, the end exactly. all and be all. The right time. The right time. Everyone else diverts from this time. Yeah, the gone mean time. Exactly. Anyway, the, welcome back the from the very Hadoop best Summit. time in the world. Indeed, happy post Hadoop Summit slump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did kind of take a slump because we did kind of skip our usual date two weeks ago because we did uh, the two Hadoop Summit episodes days before that regular scheduled episode time. Indeed, and they, they all went pretty long as well. So, <laughs> really? uh, Yeah, just a little, just a, on into the early hours of the morning. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was a good, good summit, I think. I had sort of a lot of the sessions that uh, I went to, I really quite enjoyed. So, yeah, yeah, sign of good things to come, I think. Yeah, me too. I mean, when I came back from the office, I've been able to give a lot of, uh, how do you call that, teacher-teacher kind of situations. So it's yeah. very, very useful. Excellent. Very good. So, I mean, as we're talking about summits, mm-hmm. obviously this is also the um, the real, the last uh, week that people can apply for another uh, ticket in the raffle to win um, a, a pass to the San Jose DataWorks Summit. Um, so for those of you that uh, are tuning in for the very first time, if you essentially if you retweet or somehow otherwise publicize and let us know how you're doing that publicity, uh, the Roaring Elephant podcast, you get a entry into a raffle to win a free pass to the DataWorks Summit in San Jose. And this is the final week for entries. So uh, we'll be ruffling through our Excel spreadsheet. So yes, the final cutoff is going to be the 5th of May. So uh, that will be the point where we uh, choose the winner. And uh, as as we have done previously, that we'll choose a winner and an alternate, just in case we uh, don't hear back from the winner. So uh, yeah, good luck to everybody that's entering. We've had quite a number of entries so far. Um, looking forward to a surge towards the end. Yeah, let's hope so. Get your uh, tickets in. Um, and then, so we have a uh, an episode that's a s- somewhat of a departure from our normal um, our normal flow, although it's not the first time we've done it. Is uh, we've got an episode that's purely around news today, uh, and that's mainly because, well, technical reasons. A, yeah, technical reasons, and we we really just blew our recording budget <laughs> with uh, the uh, DataWorks Summit um, uh, blow-by-blow yeah. sessions. So, uh, yes, we're a little bit over. Those went slightly longer than anticipated. Yeah, indeed. So, short episode today. Um, we give a, give you some extra time to go and read up about exciting big data things. Yeah, go and, and do big exciting big data things. And the quality of this episode might just be a little less than usual because I'm con- probably going to have to record on a lower bit rate just to stay within our little uh, uh, budget we have. <laughs> <laughs> but fear not, we'll be back as usual before you know it. 
Yeah, and one last mention perhaps for the Sharks versus Turtle uh, competition. Well, competition mm-hmm. is a big word perhaps. Uh, the votes are in and Sharks have uh, won. We've also talked to a lot of people during the summit about this subject. You mentioned this already, I think. And we are going to be moving to a different format where we'll have weekly short episodes, but that's not going to happen soon. That'll probably just happen after the summer. That way we have an easier way of bridging summer holidays. Indeed. For next year's summer, though, we'll have to figure something out. Yes. Yes, I don't quite know how that's going to work out. I'm sure it'll be fine. See, you heard it here. Dave will make sure it works. I don't have to do a thing. (laughs) And on that bombshell? Indeed. Let's get into some news. Well, let's get into some music, the best part of the show, and then we go into some news. Oh, the music. I do love the music. Play me some music, yo. Shut up, then. So as mentioned, it's a news-only show, and looking at our uh, preparation for today, we actually found that we had one news article in common. We do prepare these things separate, and sometimes, well, very rarely, but sometimes it does happen. So in the end, we have five articles to talk about, uh, two from Dave, two from me, and two from us both. And who's going to go first? Well, you're higher in the list, so you can go first if you want to. Yeah, sure. So I came across Superset for the first time actually during um, the summit, and uh, it it's just something that completely passed me by. Um, I didn't have any background around it, um, didn't really know uh, anything about it at all. And uh, so when an article came up in my news feed that further piqued my interest, I thought I'd go and take a look. Um, so this article is uh, from InData Labs. And they were looking at um, open source sort of data visualization tools um, and comparing and contrasting. And, and essentially, they settled on Superset and then wrote a reasonably detailed blog post on, um, you know, why they settled on that, um, some of the issues that they had with it, some of the things that you need to to think about and expect. Um, I just found it really quite useful, not just... Um, because they're talking about it f- as something that they're using for their own purposes rather than just a, you know, tool by tool, spec by spec comparison, it's a bit more in depth than, um, than you might normally see from these kind of, uh, these kind of pieces. So anyway, they talked a little bit about their sort of selection process. Um, you know, they wanted, uh, things that were interactive. They wanted, um, ideally, no coding uh, required, so you know all the functionality should be available via buttons and a variety of other uh, controls. And uh, they, you know, very focused on something that was uh, open source. Ideally, um, they sort of um, distilled their available solutions down to essentially Superset and, P- and Pentaho, mm-hmm. um, and then eventually, you know, further distilled that down to really Superset. Um, being the, uh, the the selection that uh, they came from, that they decided on, sorry. Um, so Superset originally came out of uh, Airbnb, which at the end was something that I was not previously aware of. Um, and they've got um, sort of quite a, a variety of different visualizations sort of built into the platform. Um, 
uh, Airbnb uses Superset uh, directly with Druid, but actually you can use it with quite a variety of different backend data sources as well. So you're not sort of uh, just limited to that. Um, and then it goes through the the most interesting piece, I think, was the actual some of the challenges that they had with the uh, the platform. They talk about uh, some of the issues um, around sort of uh, join clauses and some sort of custom SQL and filtering that they had to go through, um, and uh, and sort of some of the sort of short benefits and disadvantages, um, and the. The sort of benefits and disadvantages side of things, particularly, I thought was was useful because it it sounds like a lot of very sort of early fast moving projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like uh, very fast response from the GitHub issues uh, from the team, um, the visualizations were very well, well. In their words, visualizations are really beautiful, um, and um, you know supports multiple data sources, but disadvantages um the tool is developing very rapidly so expect to find bugs uh report them as github issues and uh you know that they've been very happy with the sort of rapid progress but um like a lot of these tools and technologies um you know it does what it does really well um but if you want to customize it at all expect that you'll have to dive into the source yeah. code or raise, you know, RFEs and that sort of thing. Yeah, let's hear Well, the first thing to mention, they have a house uh, animated GIF in there, so that's good. That's always a win. <laughs> you are good. <laughs> they say they have 30 types of visualization. Okay, that's 30 types, so probably some variations in there. Yeah. I'm just yeah. trying to get my head around where you would put this in a in a workflow, because it's, it's not a replacement for thing, something like uh, Click or uh, Tableau, right? It's just it's, it's doing visualization as well, but only that. It doesn't allow you to do any kind of exploration, right? Um, yes, I think, that's, I think that's right, yeah. I don't really see that because it does. I mean, that those guys, uh, Power BI, uh, Click, uh, Tableau, they allow you to do nice visualizations and then you click through to get more depth and whatever to see what's underneath there. But this really looks like set up a kind of query report inside the tool, apparently, and then yeah. visualize that with a nice visualization, which is yeah. Uh, it's, it's bound to run on a on a, on a, on a data mart, right? You're not going to run this directly on any Hadoop cluster. Yeah, I, I believe that's the case. I don't think it's it's designed really for to, to go further than that. That being said, um, if you do take a look at the, um, so it's not just for fixed visualizations. It's it's for also for interactive visualizations. Well, so maybe, yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Okay. Um, so you can start to drill into this. In fact, um, if if uh, if you go to airbnb.io slash superset, there's a series of animated GIFs um, that go through and actually show really how you can build this sort of widgetized dashboard, uh, apply filters to it, um, you know, drill drill into it in in more detail. So it it seems like it it's more than just basic visualization. Okay, it probably doesn't go quite as as far as some of the platforms, but it has, at least to me, a, a very similar feel to something like uh, Banana or Kibana, those those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it looks very, quite very similar to Power BI, actually, the Power BI service, which I know because I'm from Microsoft. Uh-huh. So it looks very similar to that, a little less polished, perhaps, but... Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. It's a bit of a how much of a not invented here syndrome is this? Well, good. I mean, no, yeah. how long have they been working on this? They say it's very new. How new is very new? Have you have any idea? I don't. Uh, I don't know how long it's been around for. I have a feeling that it's about a year or so old. Okay, this project um, was originally named Panoramics, which was renamed to Caravel uh, in March 2016, and is currently named Superset as November 2016. So it's about a year, two years max. Yeah. Caravel actually rings a bell somewhere in the very deep recesses of my brain. What passes <laughs> for a brain, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I just... I. I'm curious. I, I find the visualization side of things particularly interesting mm-hmm. on on big data platforms, as I think it's one of the areas that's. I don't think there's a a really a hundred percent solid answer yet. So um, I'm always interested to see what's sort of developing, and yeah, curious to see how Superset continues to continues to go. I mean, the it's fairly tightly coupled to Druid with a few other options. You know, coming on behind, mm-hmm. um, it'll be curious yeah. to see how that uh, how that continues to develop. If it does, well, it's not an issue that Druid's uh, requirement. Because if I'm not mistaken, in uh, Hortonworks, HTTP now has Druid and uh, included as well. Yeah, that's, that's true. With the whole um, what you call again the um, data, not data, uh, the cube, the cubes uh, that you have now available in Hive and stuff. That's all based on yeah. Druid uh, technology, so that's just shipped with it. Which yep. just mean you can plug this into any Hadoop system you want. It's just that these kinds of, um, I've done this kind of, uh, workflows, uh, with customers and we typically put Spark in between for the speed mm-hmm. because if you really want to have uh, interactive, I click on this bar in the bar chart yeah. and I want to see the subset of that uh, explode yeah. open. Hive. I've not tried tested with Hive with LLAP, of course, because LLAP is not in production as far as I know in any customer I work with, because uh, it's very new still. Uh, but that's the reason we go to Spark. If uh, Druid and LLAP allows this to do it directly on Hive, that will really open up a couple of uh, interesting things. Mm-hmm. That would really make it uh, a good seller for, for LLAP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could be, could be quite a nice uh, accelerator. Yeah. And this is full open anyway. source, right? Uh, yes, yep, all open source. So you just installed somewhere. Is it Java based or any idea? No, Python based. Oh, oh even better. I can even hack that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. All right, over to you. Over to me. Have to get my page back. My first article, uh, just to get some reputa- reputability to the podcast, is from Science Magazine. <laughs> and it's titled Even Artificial Intelligence Can Acquire Biases Against Race and Gender. It's a fairly long article. Uh, not too long, but if you read it, you'll, you'll spend some time on it. And it actually contradicts something I've been uh, saying on a podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it actually also gives us the reasons why it's uh, contradicting that. And apparently, I am wrong-ish. I won't say wrong, but wrong ish. Humble pie time. Uh, well, a little bit perhaps. Small pie. The thing is, is I've been expo- how shall I exponing, exposing the, the benefits of machine learning because you take out the human bias because the machine mm-hmm. will just uh, do what a machine does without feeling and whatever. But apparently what they've now done on the University of Princeton, it was, I think, uh, some university people, it's in the, it's in the, 
article. I can't just find it. Uh, right University of Bath in the UK and Princeton University. Yeah. Yeah. You had Princeton in my head there. They've done some uh, training of uh, AIs on natural language and things. And what they actually found is that where humans have some kind of, uh, I don't know, inborn association, they give an example here that one would apparently, I think this is US uh, biased, but still, that one would uh, assign the feelings of happiness and sunrise with names like Brad and Courtney. And you'll uh, say, you'll think about hatred and vomit, apparently, when you're hearing the names Leroy and Letitia. This is from the article. This is not me, right? <laughs> Indeed. And apparently what they found is when they trained an AI on like, natural language, AIs actually got that same, same kind of uh, connotation between names and meaning behind it. Which is very interesting, because that means that machine learning is not a safe way to get your bias out of that. And they actually have a very practical example at the end of the article. I'm just uh, quoting here. Um, they have shown that even Google is not immune to the bias. Because if you use a company's translator software to convert gender-neutral pronouns from several languages, from several languages, it will tr uh, translate it into he when you're talking about a doctor and she when you talk about a nurse. <laughs> mm. <laughs> is, so surely, though, I mean, machine learning... And training those models is often, I mean, it's influenced by the data that exactly. you train the models on. Yeah. So it's a bit of an exponential of a garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I, I get it. And I, I can see why this, you know, might be a thing, but I, I'm still not sure I actually, I actually believe it because if, it is very much still the product of of all of the data that you train the models on, and if that's the if that's the way the data is skewed on the way in, then that's how the results are going to be skewed on the way out. Yeah, it's just that there hadn't been any real forensic ev uh, evidence that that was the case, and this has yeah. now been yeah, let's call it proven. Because yeah. the whole the, the consensus was a little bit that as long as you put enough data in there, the statistics of the matter will will all be even it all out. But apparently, it's not. It doesn't. Mm. There you go. So it's a, it was a nice little read. It's not very technical. I usually go with more technical stuff, but this was something that uh, piqued my interest, and I uh, enjoyed the read. Mm. Curious. Okay. And it always uh, enforces the idea: be careful with your data. Bias is always present. Indeed. Indeed. Back to you. All right. So yes. So moving from one high-ish level article to another. Um, so this, uh, it's kind of strange that when this came through on my, uh, my newsfeed, I thought, oh, it's, it's another Hortonworks article. Uh, <laughs> turns out it's not actually. Um, so this is the, uh, it's an article from the IBM, uh, big data Anal and analytics hub, and it's titled building a cognitive data lake with ODPI compliant Hadoop, uh, ODPI, uh, for those that, uh, haven't been listening to our <laughs> um, podcast previously, the Open Data Platform Initiative, which you make us uh, sound like such, such a marketing organization now. Ah, uh, no, of course not. It's all about the standards, baby. Um, <laughs> but they're really about defining standards um, for um, the Hadoop distributions or for uh, Hadoop platforms to provide greater interoperability, acceleration, and lots of other fabulous things. Um, but this is talking about. 
um, data lakes from a more kind of conceptual level. Um, and it's quite interesting because it, it does echo uh, a lot of the things, um, a lot of the sort of patterns that we've been talking about on the podcast previously. Um, now, the sort of, uh, you know, so they, they basically sort of split it up into five sort of rules and go into explaining them individually. But uh, the five rules, just to give you a bit of a teaser um, as far as their uh, concerned are that data lakes need to be defined by consumption patterns, not data types, uh, which I, I couldn't agree more. You need to you need to understand how your users are going to be consuming the data uh, more than uh, you know, how you lump the data in the first place. Yeah, this is also something that has to do with the con- a scheme on the read versus scheme on the write. But exactly. The scheme on the read and scheme on the write is very specific on when I make a database type table. And no, it's more yeah. broader than that. It's really gather your data and when you know what you're going to do with it that's when you start uh, working with it yep um their second one is it's not all about hadoop of course it um, is come on <laughs> well again I th- so i think they miss the point slightly but uh, whatever um the it it's not all about hadoop in the fact that there are a huge variety mm-hmm. of different engines and parts of the ecosystem that play and interact with the data lake so yeah sure the, yeah. the the core of it may well be an underlying HDFS, but uh, there's so much more to Hadoop than HDFS, and there's so much more to the ecosystem than just yeah. HDFS. That's also a recent uh, evolution, right? I mean, three years ago, it was all about Hadoop. If you wanted a data yeah. lake, you had HDFS and Yarn, even not Yarn, and that was it. But uh, yeah. as I say in the article here, uh, it, it, a related assumption that data lakes are built on Apache Hadoop is questionable because these days that's a bit when with the crystal ball episode my mm-hmm. my, my my thoughts about the fragmentation of the ecosystem not in a bad exactly. way but in the it really goes everywhere now and hadoop a, a data lake is more and more a conceptual thing based yep. on your consumption patterns yep than exactly a grouping of uh, technologies yep um so next one interoperability is key um i would hope that's <laughs> Fairly self-explanatory and also, you know, fairly standard for what people are doing. I mean, the data and the interaction with that data is not just, uh, it doesn't just exist within uh, the data lake as a, well done, you've created a brand new silo. It's just larger than all the other silos. (laughs) It's all about the interaction between that and the variety of other tools and tech that you use. Yeah, that's very in sync with uh, number four there, because that's for me the same thing, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and number four for those that uh, can't read Jan's mind, which is probably a good thing, uh, standardization wow. enables innovation. So I think they're talking about it from the, from the obviously from the ODPI standardization of things. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you run, if you run something on one ODP compliant environment, then you can go ahead and run it on another as well. Yeah, well, that's what interoperability is only possible if you have standards, because then you have people that don't talk to each other still being able to use each other's product because you have a central API or something you agreed upon yeah and that's uh, what OBI does really yeah indeed and then the, the, the final sort of element that it ends on is democratization requires good data governance um, which I think you know continues to echo um, the the sort of messages that we've been hearing continuously for the last sort of couple of years really as as enterprises consume uh, big data more and more voraciously. You know, they require a higher level of data governance than has been present in the platform previously. And you know, they, they they talk about the um, 
Um, governance governance frameworks, emerging governance frameworks such as Apache Atlas offer potential, uh, but standardization will be required to help ensure that Atlas and other tools can op- operate seamlessly and effectively. Couldn't agree more. And so, you know, the the potential is there, but it requires um, it requires everybody to work together in that uh, in that direction. Yeah, luckily, luckily I don't know, but uh, governments are pushing the industry towards interoperability on that uh, piece as well. Because if you look at GDPR in Europe, yeah. if you don't have good governance, which can only get through good standards and interoperability, you'll get into trouble eventually. Indeed, indeed. And actually, there's a. I just noticed there's a link at the bottom of the article, which is a link to the uh, ODPI's YouTube channel. It's uh, so where you can where you can uh, actually watch the full interview. So I might go and do that later. But Let's yeah, I, nice nice article, um, yeah, echoing our thoughts, which is uh, which is always nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as they're echoing us and not vice versa, because here's where the truth starts, right? Exactly, of course it is. <laughs> All right, over to you. Yep, and we're going to have to start speeding this up because we're going to get over our recording budget and we can't get something out then anymore. So very quickly, because this is a small one, uh, I've got a small blog from Hortonworks here. It's not very big. It's called the Top 5 Performance Boosters with Apache Hive LLAP. Mm-hmm. The first noticeable thing here is that LLAP is no longer called Live Long and Process, but is called Low Latency Analytical Processing, which boring. actually makes sense. It's boring, but it does make sense. <laughs> and when you're talking to the more business-oriented uh, customers, uh, the long Live Long and Process, it, nah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing. But anyway, it goes to, uh, it's a relatively short article, goes through five points. I'm quickly going to name them perhaps, although I'm not going to because I want to go on to the next article, which is the more interesting one. But it just goes through five items within LRAP, which are a little below the coverage perhaps, why LRAP gives you the advantages it can give you. Uh, the one thing I will pick out is uh, the second one, zero ETL analytics on CSV and JSON data. And if I paraphrase that, in normal uh, Hive environments with serialized deserialization, you have to do that uh, serialization, deserialization on every single time when you access a row. By using LAP as a kind of a caching layer, which it mostly is, you mm-hmm. only do that the first time. And then when it's cached in LAP, it's cached in its, uh, call it schematic form. So yeah. you don't get that hit anymore. So that was uh, one I hadn't really, yeah, true. Ah, they didn't get that. So nice. it's a short article, some some, le- some small tidbits like this spread around there. It's a good read. If you're still looking to find out if LRAP is good for you or not, well, it's going to be good for you anyway because it's going to go into Hive and you won't have much choice because Hive Server 2 will decide when to use LRAP or not as long as you enable it because, and that was the final thing I want to say here, enabling LRAP in HTTP apparently is just flicking one switch in Ambari, which is also very nice. Yeah. And if I could just add one other piece of that that I, I also hadn't realized is that um, the, I mean, LAP has been focused around uh, in memory for a, a lot of, a lot of time, mm-hmm. but actually they've also added um, the LLAP SSD cache. Mm-hmm. So essentially you have a combined RAM and SSD pool for your LLAP, which I think is, that's fantastic news. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't uh, detail anything, but I'm assuming this is uh, separate from the tiered HDFS. Uh, yeah, solution, yeah right? it will be. It will be. Yeah. So yeah, it gives you, it, it, it's really getting to be a really mature enterprise ready uh, database solution here. I mean, anybody saying, telling me anything else is uh, behind the times. Yeah. 
very, very, very good. So, short article, short and concise, but definitely worth your read. Mm-hmm. So, up to you to introduce our common article. Okay, so as as Jan mentioned, we, we organise our news stories individually and occasionally uh, there's a bit of a clash and that's what happened here. So, um, although interestingly, both of us picked this article and neither of us really understand it in depth, <laughs> so this should be interesting. Um, but essentially it's another Hortonworks article, but this time it's all it's quite a long one, quite a detailed mm-hmm. technical one, and it's uh, integrating Spark R and R for better data science workflow. Flow. Yeah, the, the R thing is coming more and more prevalent. How do you call that? Uh, prevalent. Prevalent. Thank you. Because I'm hearing more and more about. Of course, at Microsoft, R is more uh, pushed a little bit more, perhaps than Spark is, because yeah. uh, Revolution R and everything. But still, even from customers, R is very widespread. Everybody doing statistics is using R, and where at up to a year ago, I'd say that R and Spark, well, you could do some R and Spark, but it was a bit of a heartache. Mm-hmm. It's getting easier and easier, apparently. And mm-hmm. as you said, it's a blog from Hortonworks, but it's not a marketing blog where my f- earlier one could be conceived as a bit of a marketing push from, market, from, uh, from uh, Hortonworks, which is fine. This is really an in-depth one with uh, examples, a little bit of code here and there. It's nice. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I picked up from it um, was around some of the differences between how things were handled in Spark 1.5 versus mm-hmm. Spark 2.1. Um, so in in Spark 2.1 specifically, um, there are now a number of the MLlib um, algorithms exposed for our users as well. So, um, you know, they, they make a point in quoting from the article now, uh, lots of algorithms in the top 20 single-node machine learning packages rank have corresponding scalable implementations in Spark. We're working on moving more scalable machine learning into MLib um, to expose API for Spark users. So... I think that's for me that was the piece that was that was most interesting is that um you know R has had you know versions that can be scaled out across clusters uh, for some time you know when, when pre sort of pre Microsoft acquisition uh, revolution analytics uh-huh. had their sort of enterprise yep. sort of version which was sort of scaled out that's now been subsumed into the uh, the wider scale of things, but a lot of people have not gone down that route and have still struggled with R running on single platforms. And mm-hmm. this, this overall, to me at least, this seemed to be um, really showing people how to how to run R at scale without having to go down that path. Well, I'm not entirely sure if you're going to avoid it because uh, standard open source R is still not multi-threaded and everything. So you'll probably still benefit from these things, but because the Revolution R stuff has also been partially open sourced, you can get a very far, you can get quite far now. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, nice article. Um, if you have an interest in Spark and R and data science generally um, and want to know a bit further, definitely worth checking out. There's also um uh, some of the the, the final piece, pieces on the future direction, um, mm-hmm. and they're talking about um, improved things like improved UDF performance um, and uh, a lot of improvement on the data frame side of things as well with Spark R. Yeah, Spark so, R UDF performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So interesting times. Yeah, it's uh, really looking like I'm going to have to learn R in the end anyway. 
<laughs> yeah, for some reason, I still don't like the the syntax that R uses. Although, if R is being uh, resyntaxified, yes, that's a word in Spark, then that becomes a lot more palatable for me, at least. Mm. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. And so that's that, uh, coming up to thirty minutes, and that means we have to shut down this podcast episode for today. Unless you have All any right. final ending words. Ending, Nothing ending words of else wisdom. from me. Nothing else no from me. Wisdom. Well, in that case, that's all the time we have for today, really. <laughs> yeah, really. We do still hope you enjoyed this, uh, well, really bite-sized piece of big data. We'll be back in a normal two weeks' time with a new episode, of course. And at that episode, we will be announcing our San Jose winners. So get your raffle tickets. Get them now while they're still available. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form and the raffle rules. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag, and you can contact us by sending email at podcast at roaringelephant.org. Send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback you might have. Until next time, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we really look forward to you to talk to you again in the next time. See you then.